Well, good evening and welcome uh, to Uni Church. My name is Rowan. Uh, if you don't know me, I'd love to meet you after the service and just say hi. Uh, so great that you've come along. Um, what's great about meeting together each week is that we get to meet one another, we get to hang out together. But ultimately, it's that we get to hear from God's Word and think together about what He's saying to us. So why don't we pray now that God would fix our eyes on what He wants us to see as we look through this passage that Ming, uh, sorry, Austin just read for us. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you so much for the joy of hearing your word tonight. We want to thank you that as we come to this passage, we know that it is you who has spoken, and we pray that you would fix our eyes on what you would have for us to see. Pray, Lord, that my words may be helpful and only uh, your words, and that whatever isn't from you would be forgotten. But that as we come together around this word this evening, Father, we pray it might change our futures. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Why is it, generally, that in this country, Christians aren't persecuted? Might be a bit of an odd question to you. Come along to church, like, who asked that sort of question? It's not the sort of question that we come along to the Bible and say, you know, why aren't Christians more persecuted, God? It's not the way we, we generally think. But God is far more loving than to let us just come to his word with our own questions. His word asks the right questions of us. It allows us to see the world through his eyes. And the question I'm left with after looking over these passages that we have in front of us today is, why is it that generally in this country, Christians aren't persecuted? I don't know what your experience has been But for me, I haven't really suffered any serious persecution. Occasionally, I get a funny look when I say I'm a pastor. They're like, whoa. And you get the the lines that come after that, the normal ones. Oh, so you only work one day a week. You're like, no, far longer than that. Preparation and meeting with people. and There's probably invitations that we get crossed off because we're a little odd. Why would you come and and kind of run a church and be a pastor at a church? But there's nothing too great about the persecutions that Sarah and I feel. But as I look at this passage today, that is a problem for me. It's a problem for me. Let me tell you why. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. We looked at it last week, but we see its implications this week quite, quite largely. So don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Instead, share in suffering for the gospel, relying on the power of God. I want us tonight to see the profound nature of what Paul is saying here in this letter because it shapes the way we think about everything. Paul is saying here that either you suffer for the gospel or you're ashamed of it. You can't have both. You're either going to suffer for the gospel or you're going to be ashamed of it. If you're ashamed of the gospel, you won't speak it and therefore you won't suffer for it. And if you suffer for the gospel, the only way that's going to happen is if you actually are unashamed of the truth of the gospel, that you say what you believe to others. I want to put it to us all today, myself included, that comfort, relational bliss, financial security and polite living are all enemies of God's kingdom. Because they falsely sell the greatest good in this world as being how comfortable I feel. How good it is for me. How much blessing it gives to me now, even if it leads us to hell. Now, that's a strong word. The Christian life is not and will not ever be a life void of suffering. Not this side of Jesus' return. That's the normal expectation of what Paul is saying here. Why is it then that generally, in the context we live in, that living the Christian life does not cause suffering? Well, to understand that, Paul kind of here helps us to understand what causes the suffering. What causes the suffering in the lives of Christians is this, and it might not be what you expect. It's words. It's words. Because words matter. Words matter. Have you ever heard the phrase, sticks and stones might break my bones, but words will never hurt me or names will never hurt me? You know, whose parents said that to them when they were growing up? Just show of hands. Whoa, no one. Oh, you guys, I'm so sorry. So some. Who's heard that phrase before? 
Oh, okay, great, great. Okay. All right, we're back on board again. Okay. Right, that, that phrase is often used, sticks and stones will break our bones, but names will never hurt us. You know, they can't hurt you by saying names. Whoever came up with that phrase was an idiot. I don't know what fairy world they're living in, but words hurt. Some of the most hurtful moments in my life have been when I've said things that I regret to others, or when others have said things to me that really deeply hurt. And the words that hurt the most are the ones that were true. Isn't that always the way? Well, at the heart of the Christian faith are words. Words from God. Words that give life. But words that show we need to be given life. That show we have a great need. Paul had just outlined them to Timothy a few verses earlier. Have a look at verse 9 of chapter 1. Paul says this, God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. The message, the news that God has for us, the words at the heart of the Christian faith is, it is not about you. God is doing something according to his purpose and grace. Not according to what we have done. The message of the gospel is the message that you and I are in serious trouble. They're words that hurt. They're words that if they are true, make us realize we need saving. And there's nothing that you or I can do about it. About 10 years ago, I was with a group of mates. And we're at the beach and there's this great surf. And the surf looked so good. And I remembered in the caravan we were staying in with these three other guys, there was this small little boogie board. It was like polystyrene. Now, I'm not much of a surfer. I'm like Lachlan. Lachlan's a pro surfer, watches it in his spare time. Although you've got to encourage him to surf more when he's here. He hasn't been out much. But anyway, and so out out I went. I grabbed this little board. I thought, this is great. There's great waves. And I kind of swim out there. It's pretty cold. It was about this time of year, maybe a month sooner. So I'm like, what am I doing without a wetsuit? I don't know. But I thought, hey, this is great. I'll catch these waves in. I grew up at the beach with, with beach holidays. Not up the beach, but holidays at the beach. Anyway, so I, I start catching the first wave in, and I realize how big these waves are. They're huge. They're like about 10 foot. They're large. And I'm not the best swimmer. I'm all right. But then I realized there was a rip, and I'm stuck in a rip. And I'm getting caught out and dragged out. I'm like, man, what am I going to do at this point? Like my board. And then suddenly the next wave comes and knocks my board in. And I'm like treading water with this huge surf coming in, smashing me down. I'm like, man, I'm stuffed. The only options I had were to let the rip kind of pull me out and go around the next headland and hope that it would bring me in at some point. It was pretty cold. I'm like, man, I don't like my chances. Or I could have swum to the rocks just along the side where there was a break wall. But I'm like, these waves will smash me down. I realized at that point that I needed help. I could not get myself out of this position. My only hope was to call out to this 15-year-old board rider who was near me. He had flippers, by the way. I didn't have flippers. And it's to cry out like, like, like for help. It's a help. And that's what I did. It's incredibly humbling to be in the position where we can't do anything ourselves that we need someone else. The heart of the gospel is this news. None of us can do anything about our relationship with God. We've already put ourselves in a position where we've stuffed it. We've turned our backs on him. Our only hope can't come from us. There's nothing that we can do to earn it or to buy it or to achieve it. We've rejected God and our only hope is that God might reach out and forgive us and save us. No one likes to hear words like that. No one likes to hear that they need help and there's nothing they can do to rescue them from the situation that they're in. It's it's humbling and we hate that. Our pride is so strong. But that's exactly the heart of the words of the news of the Christian message. The news that we need help. But thankfully, that's not all this news is. It's the news that Jesus has provided that help as well. Look at verse 10. This has now been made evident through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus. Kind of get the surf life-saving rescue kind of picture in your head, right? He comes crashing through the waves, ready to save us. Who has abolished death. And brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. These words that are at the heart of the Christian faith are offensive, but they are wonderful at the same time. 
What they mean is that the only way we can be saved from our rebellion against God is through the death and resurrection of Jesus in our place. He's the only one who has faced the death that we deserve for turning our backs on God. He's the only one who's offered us forgiveness. And if you're here tonight checking out Jesus, seeing the things of God and thinking through, is this for me? Then friends, please hear this news. Yes, it's offensive. But oh, how great it is that we have wronged the one true and living God, but that he has provided life in his son and forgiveness. The problem is that is not a popular message. The moment you tell someone that there's only one way to be saved, there's only one true God and one right way to live, what do they say? Oh, you narrow-minded bigot. How could you be so closed-minded to think there's only one way? How could you be so rude as to discount all the other faiths in the world? Those words are so offensive, I want nothing to do with them. You're saying that I have got to do something toward this God? How dare you say that there's something wrong with me? These words, they, they fly in the face of a culture whose truth is relative. They fly in the face of a culture who seek to pursue peace and happiness and comfort and leisure at all costs. And anyone who expresses anything other than what this world says will be scorned, will be shut down, will be silenced. How dare you say such a closed-minded, bigoted, narrow-minded thing? And that's why we don't. That's why we don't speak these words. That's why we don't suffer. Because we've become very skilled at holding what we believe to be true private. Why we exist in a world that's quite publicly against what we believe. We've become very skilled at holding something to be true but not expressing it. And knowing the right way to kind of get around it and and walk the fine line. Because, well, we don't want our heads shot off. We don't want to swim against the tide. But this is where we need to remember that words matter. Words matter. The only way we can know God and be saved is through his word to us. It's through him speaking to us in the scriptures. These words that we have, they're the only way to have life. They're the only way to know God. Imagine trying to get to know me, not through my words. You go, oh, fair enough, Rowan, you can talk. But I really want to get to know you through some other means. How do you get to know me without talking to me or listening to my words? You could ask others about me. You could make up your own mind about me, but you don't know me. Words matter. And God has made his word very plain to us. It's even an unpopular thing to say amongst some Christian circles. Many people will say that, you know, we can know God by looking within. You just need to search and you get to know God that way. Or you can know God by seeing a vision or a dream or listening to him in prayer to see what he has to say to us or by, by seeking a sign. But friends, listen to the way that Paul speaks about these words. Listen to how he speaks. Verse 13. Hold on, Timothy, to the pattern of sound teaching that you heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This is probably Paul's last letter to Timothy. He's kind of sending him out to take the news that he has taught Timothy to the world around him. And notice he doesn't say, Timothy, when you do that, look inside yourself. As you head out into the world and raise up other workers, think about what God is saying to you and just say that strongly, whatever he's saying to you. He doesn't say go out and seek signs, look for the writing on the wall and and see if there's a fleece out the front and in the back like kind of happened in the Old Testament. He doesn't encourage him to chase after experiences of God outside what Paul had taught. He says this, hold on, hold on. This is my word to you. Hold on to the pattern of sound teaching that you heard from me in the presence of others. This is the key thing to do to make sure you are in the faith, that you are saved, that you know God. What I taught you, Timothy, was good. It was the gospel. It was the news of what Jesus had done and its implications for us. So Jesus died in your place. You know what I've said. That's what saves. That is God to you. Hold on to it. Don't twist it. Don't change it. Don't improve on it. Don't seek more than what I've said to you. Just hold on. So often we are after spiritual experiences of God. 
We want to know God, and rightly so. We've got this deep desire to know the God who made us and to know him intimately. And we seek out, how does God work by his spirit? Surely, Rowan, God's spirit can reveal more of God to us than what Paul said in that word 2,000 years ago. Well, listen to how Paul describes the work of the spirit in the very next verse. Verse 14. God, through the Holy Spirit who lives in us, that good thing entrusted to you. Do you see that? God, through the Holy Spirit who lives in us, that good thing entrusted to you. The work of the Spirit is to guard the pattern of sound teaching that Paul has passed on to Timothy. The Word and the Spirit are inseparable. It's a really helpful concept. Some people want to come along and go, look, we've got the Word of God, then we've got the Spirit of God. And the Word of God's great because it's God to us, but then God's Spirit is amazing and He changes us and gives us new revelations. But here, know that they're together. The Spirit lives in Timothy and allows him to guard what Paul had passed on, the gospel, that which is now scripture. The word and the spirit are inseparable. Trying to separate them is, is kind of like saying this. I want you at this very moment to separate my breath from my words. Can you do that? You can distinguish my breath from my words. There's air coming through my lungs, going, passing through my vocal cords, and that's being molded and shaped by my tongue and my mouth, which is shaping them into a form of communication. But you can't separate my words from my breath, not as I speak. Well, so it is with the Spirit of God. It is all Scripture, Paul will tell us in, a little bit later in chapter 3, is inspired by God, is breathed out by God. Uh, the Spirit is the one who breathes out this word. He lives in us and he, and he worked through Paul so that we might know God through the word that Paul wrote down, that, that, that deposit, that sound pattern of teaching that he's passed on. The spirit and word work together. Yes, we can distinguish them, but they're inseparable. The spiritual life, the spirit-driven life is the life that holds onto and guards the pattern of sound teaching. It's not the life that seeks God's work in some new way. But it seeks God to work new growth through the same old way. Let me say it again. The spiritual life is not the life that seeks God to work in some new way, but seeks God to work new growth in us through the same old way of His Word recorded in Scriptures, breathed out by the Spirit, made alive by God in us. This is the word of God. This is what God has spoken to us. And this is how he has spoken. I'll give you an illustration to help understand this a little more. Imagine for a moment that this is not true. What I'm about to say, don't all freak out, okay? All right, everyone's got that. Don't freak out at this moment. Imagine the whole building's on fire. It's not really. Okay, good, good. Okay, but imagine it was. Okay, the whole building is on fire at this very moment. And I came in here and I said, okay, guys, the building's on fire. Every exit is blocked except for the one where you go to the back left, you go out those doors, you turn left, you walk around the corridor, turn right, go down the stairs and exit and turn right. That's the only way out to survive. Now, at that moment, if I said those words, you're kind of like, what? Like, I, they're important words, right? If there is really only one way out of the building then we need to actually listen to those words and say, wow, this, this, this is the way we need to go. How crazy would it to be to, to stand up and go, you know what? I want to seek new ways out of this building. I want to look for another way. I, I know that the kind of person in charge has told us the best way out, but I reckon, what if there's another way to know a better way out? You just go, why would you do that? And then imagine you start chatting to others and say, look, I think there's other ways we should try. You're like, no, <laughs> the authority at the moment has spoken. We need to leave. What are you going to do? Well, the right thing to do is say, hang on a minute, what did you say? Okay, I said, you need to take the back left door, turn left, go out, turn right again, go down the stairs, turn right and run out that way. Everyone writes those down and then you pass that on. Quick, this is what we need to do. And and you listen to it and you go that way. Why? Because life and death is at stake. When it comes to the word of God, God has spoken. He has made clear the way that he has saved us in his son. His word is incredibly offensive to us. But imagine saying to God, fair enough, but I just want to seek out my own way. When God has made his way known to us, go, oh, no offense, God, I understand that you've said this plainly here, but look, I just think there are multiple ways to, to know you. 
And God's going, what? He has made himself known through the pattern of sound teaching that the apostles spoke. They were the ones, Matthew 28, that were sent out. Go and make disciples of all nations. They're the ones who lived with Jesus and who had appeared, who Jesus had appeared to, including Paul. And he sent them out then to go into the nations and make disciples. They're the ones who've been sent. You know, apostle just means sent one. That's what the word apostle means. The one who is sent. What's at stake with this word is eternity. We must see that the greatest spiritual experience we can ever have is found in hearing the word of God as found in the apostolic scriptures. Therefore, we must speak it because it's a lie. We must hold on to it because it's truth. And we must guard it so that it does not become maligned because eternity is at stake. Paul, at this moment, feels the need to remind Timothy how powerful the temptation is to ignore God's word. He knows what we're like. And so he gives the examples of, of two of these brothers. Look at verse 15. This you know. All those in Asia have turned away from me, including Philegius and Hermogenes, however you say their name. <laughs> like that. And then you just kind of move on. But just imagine this. Paul is in Asia. He's there. He's proclaiming the truth. He's seen the risen Jesus. He knows this is life. And he's told these guys that are around him and all of them desert him. Timothy, it is so important that you hold on to the truth of what I first taught you. This is life. Timothy, it's so important that you guard through God's spirit this truth that is the same as what I taught. What happened to all these people? Even Philegius and Hermogenes whoever they were. Right, they've given up on the faith. They've given up on the mission, on the kingdom of God. What was it that they were seeking? Was it a more spiritual experience, a better in, kind of interaction with God? Was it the persecution of holding to the truth of the gospel in a world that would cause suffering? We don't know why, but we do know they walked away. And Paul uses the example for us here tonight. Do not walk away from the pattern of sound teaching that Paul has taught. Do not walk away from the word of God, seeking something more or shying back from the suffering that it will cause, holding on to it. They all walked away except one. Onesiphorus. What a great name, right? I, I, I imagine him. He's, he's the one to remember, right? Because his name is onesie for us. Right? <laughs> he's the one. He's wearing his onesie. He's great. He brought comfort. Listen to him. Verse 16. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of onesie for us. Because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. See, if you wear a onesie, you're not going to be ashamed of the gospel. This guy was not ashamed of the gospel. He didn't desert Paul. He didn't desert the one who proclaimed this gospel. He stayed. Friends, eternity is at stake in these words, in this life, in this generation. Not only just for us here and now, but the generations to come. For we must hold to the pattern of sound teaching that Paul has passed on through able workers of the gospel. So do not be ashamed of the gospel, nor of those who proclaim it. But Paul says, entrust it. Entrust it. Entrust these words to reliable men. Have a look at verse 2 of chapter 2. What you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. What you have heard from me, Timothy, in the presence of many witnesses, commit, entrust, pass on to faithful, reliable men who will be able to teach others also. One of the prime works of the church of God, of the local church, is the work of raising up faithful and reliable men and women to entrust the gospel to, who will entrust it to others. Some people kind of get caught up here. Why is he just say man? Uh, the word is anthropos, which is where we get anthropology, the study of humanity. So the word is humanity. So entrust to faithful humans, men and women, who will teach others also. You're not just saying it's just the role of men to teach. It is the role of women to teach women and children and the role of men to keep seeing the church grow and hold to the truth of the gospel. But the key thing Paul has in mind here is the passing on of this message so that we do not lose it. Faithful belief in the word of God 
necessitates the raising up of faithful teachers of the Word of God. If you really are a Christian, if you trust in Jesus, that means you are in the business of seeing either through you or through others that you support, people being raised up to entrust this message so it might be spread across the globe. That's how Paul ensures that we hold on to the gospel. What are the qualifications of those who should take out this word? What would you say? You know, if I want someone to be entrusted with this gospel, what would I want them to be like? Like, I want to be the brainiest person in the world. I want to have the best jokes ever because I'll be a really good communicator. And then everyone will listen, right? Because everyone listens to the funny guy. Um, Awkward laugh. Uh, You think, what do we want? Do we want flash communication? Do we want academic prowess? No. Paul ensures we hold on to the gospel by entrusting these words to those who are faithful. Why does he use that word, reliable, faithful? What's going on there? They need to be faithful to the pattern of sound teaching. Do you see how much words matter? The power of the gospel is the news of what Jesus has done. It doesn't need to be spruced up. It doesn't need to be reinvented as we go throughout the ages with new insights. No, it just needs to be held onto and guarded and spoken. The world we live in is so enamored with the new, right? When you hear, look, we found this new way to pass exams. Everyone's like, serious? How? How is this possible? I want to know. And it's true that in the world around us, we research, we find out new things because we are seeking to understand more. But when someone reveals something of themselves to us, we don't go, oh, I want to find out more of that. Like, for instance, I just put your hand up. Who knows my middle name? And there might be a couple of you. A couple of people know? All right, there you go. Okay, you ready? Try and work out my middle name without asking anyone else around you. Go. Now you can guess. You've got no idea, right? But as soon as I say to you, my middle name is Anthony, which it is. It's my dad's name. Right? There you go, Anthony. Then suddenly you know. You don't sit there and go, no, but I want to come up with new ways of knowing Rowan's middle name. Like I've told you. You've got it. It's there. You don't go, I'm going to spell it differently. Antonioni or something. It's a new way, you know? It's the Italian name. And it'll work in Italy better than Anthony here. Uh, It is what it is. We don't come up with new ways of doing that. So Paul says the ones that we entrust the gospel to need to be faithful to the message. Not changing it, not sprucing it up, but speaking it in the world that we live in. We want people who unashamedly proclaimed what Paul first taught. Ah, for a world full of those people. For a city full of people who are eager to take out the news of Jesus. What a great thing it is. The key quality for those who've been given the office of proclaiming the gospel, for those who lead us and connect group leaders and pastors in churches, is faithful, dependable and trustworthy. Don't seek after the crowd pleasers. Don't seek after those who have got so many fancy ideas and nuances, you don't even understand what they're saying. You ever notice that? Some people, they're so nuanced, they don't even know what nuance means. You're like, well, just say it. Just tell it to me plainly. It's interesting that the New Testament was written in, in Greek. But not many people know that the type of Greek that it was written in is what they call bastard Greek. It's street Greek. It's not fancy, eloquent. Maybe Luke is the one that's kind of a little bit more fancy, but everything else is just in street language. You know, it's like, next minute, this happened. And everyone's like, whoa. You know, there's no one standing here, look, you didn't get your grammar right. You know, there was a, there was a, there was a kind of a breathing mark that was wrong here, sorry. I will just go back a little bit. It wasn't like that. We don't need crowd pleasers, super clever people, excellent scholars, people who dressed in fancy clothes and tight jeans and had tattoos on their arm. You know, we need people who will transfer the message faithfully. When Sarah and I were first thinking about moving uh, from Sydney to Auckland, um, I was kind of looking around at my year at college. And there are some guys in my year at college that are just like from another planet. You know, like in a good way. You know, when there was a lineup for the gifts that God was dishing out, I'm sure they were at the front of the line. And the guys that kind of, they know their Greek and Hebrew, they even know Aramaic. There's only like two bits of the Bible that are written in Aramaic, but they know that as well. You're like, what is wrong with you? Like, how do you, you do this? I know one guy that learnt a whole language. He learnt German so he could read a German scholar's view of the Bible. Like, that's commitment, right? Who does that? 
And then these guys, some of them, like there's some that are kind of like propeller heads, right? And they're all kind of academic-y and you can't really understand them and you're like, yeah, okay. But there's some that are like that and that can preach as well. And they actually have personalities, sorry. But they actually are like warm and care about people. And you're like, whoa. And as I was thinking through, you know, coming to New Zealand and thinking about starting a church and proclaiming the gospel, I was aware of how important words were. I'm like, God, why would you send me? I feel like I'm not eloquent. I'm kind of not the greatest person in the world with languages. I haven't got all this sorted. Why not them? And it just struck me how arrogant I was being. Because I was thinking that it depended on my skills and my ability rather than the truthfulness of the message that was first taught. The power of God is in his gospel. It's the news of what Jesus has done, that he's died in our place, that he's forgiven us, that I need saving and that Jesus has saved me if I would just trust in him. Reminded me that I need to be faithful to the truth of God's word and preach it no matter what. Paul is after people who are faithful and also able to teach. Do you notice that second half? It's no good having someone who's faithful but can't explain anything. That's not helpful because we're about words and words matter. You need to be able to express it, to defend it, to explain it and live it out. So many temptations come across us to think about how we might tone down the word of God so it's more palatable or silver bullets to grow God's kingdom. If you just had this type of music, if you just did this type of thing, if you kind of, you know, just got a tat on your arm and wore hipster glasses and grew a beard, everyone would come flocking. But the heart of Christian leadership and eldership is the teaching of the word of God. That's what needs to happen. We need to be able to teach. That's why teaching the Bible is the most important thing we do here at UniChurch. It's not one thing among 20 other things that we kind of were excited about and we love to see happen. It is critical for our life together. It's core to all we do, that we look so carefully at the words of Scripture of what God has said that we might know God more, that we might hold out the truth that comes through this news, that we might know God as He explained Himself through the apostles. That's why we keep coming back to opening up the Word of God. That's why our small groups get us into the Word of God. That's why our songs are based on the Word of God. So... um, Easy to kind of just pick Christian songs that sound cool, have got great rhythms. But actually their words are just more like a love song. You know, you just find anyone who's got a two-syllable name and you substitute it for Jesus and you're like, that's great, it works. You know, if the Christian songs that you're singing in the car or at home could be a song sung to someone that you love, not just Jesus, well, use them as love songs. But, but don't think that they're shaping us around the unique Son of God. Our music team spend time thinking through the songs that we sing and why we sing them and how they fit within what God is saying to us in his word because we care about the message God has given us. Because teaching one another as we sing is what we're about, as we sing the praises of who God is and what he's done. We need to sing truth. Do you see how critical a task it is to continue to find reliable men and women to faithfully teach the truth of these words? Not only are we concerned for everyone who is here now to faithfully teach it, but we're also concerned for the next generation. For we're only one generation from assuming the gospel, and then the next generation will deny the gospel. We need to speak it to the future generations. We want you to understand God's word with such clarity that if you get married and you end up having kids, that you'll raise your kids with such clarity that they'll pass the gospel on to their next generation with just as much clarity as you have, as God has said through his word. Our aim is to train and equip everyone here to handle God's word well because that is what matters, knowing God. We want the stories that have happened in our lives to be repeated with your family and your friends. We want them to know the truth of who God is and what he's done and to pass it on to others with just as much clarity because these words are the only place that life beyond death is found. The only place. And here's where we see the importance of suffering. The importance of suffering. Paul says in verse 3, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. As we think about how much words matter, Paul says to share in suffering. 
He calls Timothy to say, share in my suffering with a single-mindedness, a clarity about what matters most. And he uses three examples, a soldier, an athlete, and a hard-working farmer. And the picture here is, look, look at verse 4. No one serves as a soldier. Sorry, no one serving as a soldier gets entangled in the concerns of civilian life. He seeks to please the recruiter. So imagine for a moment, you're a soldier. You're defending your nation against some other enemy who's attacking you. And you're like, all right, I've got to be alert. I've got to be ready here. And then like their phone buzzes and it's like Facebook. Oh, hang on a sec. I'm just going to go Facebook my friends about something. Well, there's people attacking you. No, it's a single-mindedness. You don't get entangled in other things. When you're a soldier, you don't worry about, oh, oh you know what? What are we going to eat for dinner tonight? I wonder about that. I might just go down to the field and start cutting some corn so we can think through. No, you're at war. You, you, you make sure that those guys don't come over that hill and take you out and, and take over your nation. There's a single-mindedness that is required for those who hold to Christ. If anyone competes as an athlete, he's not crowned unless he completes according to the rules. The athlete needs to stick within the rules. It's no good running, you know, the, the, the thousand meter track race at the Olympics and be like, ready, set, go. And they run. And instead of like running the whole way around the field, you just go around the, like, the line five times. Like, I won. Yes. You're like, idiot. That's not the rules. You don't win. You've got, you've got to do it with a kind of a focus. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to get his share of the crops. The farmer works hard and labors without much fruit until the end when the crops come. You need to keep working. Not all of us will give up our day job to do this. Not all of us will see that the proclamation of gospel ministry, the entrusting to others who do entrust to others as a full-time job is the place that we need to be. We might need to work on things like our faithfulness, our reliability. We might need to work on our ability to teach. Maybe we're just not that clear in teaching and there are other ways we can serve to see the proclamation of the gospel keep happening. But every single one of us is called to suffer. 2 Timothy 3 verse 12, we'll get to it in a couple of weeks, but here's a preview. In fact, all those who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. For some of you tonight, this will mean giving up your day job. This will mean saying, you know what? Others have said that I have some skills in able to, to teach the Bible and that I hold on and I, and I care about what the Bible says and that'll mean you quit your job. That you go, you know what? I, I'm going to... I see the need in this country to see more and more people come to Jesus. I see the need in other countries across this world. And I'm going to go. Maybe I'm going to go back to the country that I came from. And I studied here. I'm going to take the training that I've had. I'm going to get skilled up more. And I'm going to go back and proclaim this there and entrust it to other reliable men and women that they might share the gospel. This is a scary word to all of us. This word I heard when I was a little bit younger. And it meant that I've changed countries. I've changed jobs. Uh, I, I changed who I would marry and made me think through how would I use my life for the kingdom. I want each of us here tonight to seriously consider how we might join in suffering with Paul as a teacher of God's word. Are you faithful? Are you reliable? Are you able to teach? Do you want to grow in those areas? Or do you want to go, ah, oh, you know, I just don't really want to suffer? Come along to EV Generate. EV Generate is there to help grow us in our ability to teach and hold to the truth of the scriptures. That's why we're running it. It's to kind of set us on fire to understand God's word, to kind of learn and, and grow as a leader. If you've seen someone around and you're like, you know what, this person exhibits some qualities I reckon they should think about ministry, then say it to them, won't you? That's part of your role in this. It's encouraging those that you think, hey, you know what, I think you can explain things well and I reckon you should think through how you might grow in these areas. It doesn't mean you stop your job right there. Okay, quit, go do this straight away. But you give things a go. You go, I might start meeting up with someone one-on-one and reading the Bible. I might start having a go at leading a couple of, of, of connect groups and chatting to the leaders about that stuff. Or it might mean, you know, I've been leading some connect groups and I'm actually going to think about taking some time out from my work and, and doing a ministry apprenticeship. Uh, that's what Ming is doing. It's what uh, Vanessa did amongst us for two years. It's what a guy called Lyndon did, who's now off in Australia at Bible College. But I'm going to try out ministry for a couple of years and see if that's something that I, I want to do long term. I did some maths the other day. When I do maths, it's never good because I've got to check it lots. 
Um, maths wasn't a great strength of mine. Sarah's even better at maths. She's, she's excellent. She did like the highest grade maths in, in high school and beat me at all that stuff. Uh, she then became an accountant where they apparently do maths. Um, I did a little bit of maths at uni in my first year. So I did one, one subject of university maths. Um, but I was thinking about where we're going as a church. And so often we think about what's happening next year, what's happening the next year. I just kind of sat back and went, where will we be in 50 years' time? What will matter in 50 years' time from now? And it got me thinking, what we need to do is to raise up an army of people trained to handle God's word well, entrusted with this gospel, faithful to the cause, able to teach. And I just kind of got Excel out and I kind of did some calculations. I said, imagine if just five churches started by raising up two kind of ministry apprentices each year. So two people went, I'm going to give this ministry thing a go. And there were people that were carefully chosen, not just anyone. We've got people who are showing the gifts and being able to do stuff. And what if half of those people then went to theological college? So five churches raise up two. Half of them go to Bible college. And then what if at Bible college, one out of every five planted a church? And say one out of the five went overseas and the other three did other kind of ministries around the country in churches or parachurch ministries. And what if that was kind of the thing that happened? And those churches that they planted grew to 300. What would happen if we continued that pace for 50 years? Do you know what will happen? 5% of the country under God will be in those churches. 350,000 people. And that includes accounting for inflation. It's two, two people a year thinking through, is this for me? Is this what I'll give my life to? Is this what I want to serve? How exciting is that? to see the gospel spread out across this country and across the globe. What a privilege that it is. So if you see those characteristics in others, encourage them. Tell them. Pray for them. Partner with them as they think through giving these things a go. But recognize the cost. It will cost you. You will suffer. Whether you support them or you are that person. The soldier, he can't do what everyone else is doing. He doesn't get to sleep in on a Saturday. He's at war. The athlete, don't get to eat pizza every night. Not unless you're a sumo wrestler, right? You can't do that. You actually have to stick to a strict regime, but there's a goal at the end that you want to win. Like the farmer, there's lots of toil waiting for your your crop to, to, to bear, but it's worth it. This section of Timothy is particularly focused on him as a leader and to Christian leaders in general. For those who are considering leadership, you need to hear this word. We want as many of you as possible to become Christian leaders. So step up, have a go, rightly handle the word of God, come to generate. Paul is inviting you to a focused life, not just the life of everyone in the world. However, there's an application in this for everyone. See, all of us have the privilege of joining in the task of suffering with Paul as Christians. All of us should be concerned about the task of passing on the message. That should be what we're doing as a church. should be how we're thinking about using our time and our money so that this message that matters might go out in the world around us that might be held on to. That needs to be our passion. But it requires effort. If you take up a ministry in church, it requires discipline. It requires reliability and faithfulness. Do what you say you'll do. Stick to it. It's hard. The Christian life is hard. I've heard people say around the traps that, you know, the true Christian life, if you're living it with the way God wants you to live, it will be easy. Everything will just work well. You have enough money. You have a blessed house, a blessed life. That's not what Paul's saying to Timothy. He's saying that you'll suffer. You'll be persecuted. We live in a world that is hell-bent on making it hard and making us want to trust in riches, in security, in, in, in comfort, in pleasure. I've heard other people say that, you know, but if you do it in God's strength, it'll be easy. And if you're finding something hard, you're probably trying to do it in your own strength, not God's strength. Like, that's not right. Paul's saying your Christian life is hard, full stop. It's just what it is like until Jesus comes back. It's not hard for a time. It's not like the Christian life is going to be like, okay, there's this little hurdle now for the next three years, and then I'll be there. It'll be hard until the day you die. That's what Christian living is. It's saying, I am going to serve and suffer for the sake of the spread of these words. Because they bring life forever. Forever. If you're finding relationships with people at church hard, people in your family hard. If you're finding that, that people hurt you within the church or that, that people leave and you feel like, oh, why have they left? 
if you're finding that the world doesn't want to hear the message you have, if you're feeling like you're tired and apathetic, if you start thinking like a consumer where we go, oh, I want church to provide this, this and this, we miss the picture that church is like a training hospital, training up doctors to go out and spread these words that bring life. And I want to encourage you with these words that Paul has for us tonight. If you're finding the Christian life hard work, welcome. Welcome. I can't tell you a year or a month or a week that I've not found hard living as a Christian. It's hard work. There's always this internal battle going on. I want to do this thing, but I know that's not right. I need to do that thing. If, If there's a battle going on within you and you're tired because of that, again, be so thankful because that is the spirit of God at work within us. Paul tells us in Galatians that the flesh and the spirit want to do two different things. And if there's a battle, it means that God is working in you by his spirit through his word. That he's causing you to say, fight. No, I'm not going to do what you want to do. If you feel like that battle is going on inside, you welcome to the experience of God dwelling in you by his spirit. If you find coming to church hard, it's hard to get up early for 6.15 p.m. (laughs) Hey, it's because it is hard. It's hard. If it's hard to hang out with people and have that conversation when you want to go home and sleep at night, but you know, they want to know about stuff that's important, but that's what the Christian life is like. That's how we get to suffer together for the sake of these words, for the gospel, for life. Because we need to suffer for the gospel. We need to fight our tendencies to be apathetic because we're at war. If you're serving, I want to encourage you here too. If you find serving hard, You need to do some preparation at home each week. You need to turn up early and on time to get things sorted. And then you need to stay up late and you go home tired. I want to encourage you, that's normal. That's what Paul expects for the Christian life. Welcome. How exciting it is to partner with God in seeing his word bear fruit and people move from death to life. The Christian life is the life of suffering now. So that more might be amazed at the work of our Savior Jesus on that last day and that his name would get the glory that it deserves. That's why we exist. That's why you exist. If you're here tonight thinking through, man, do I want in? It sounds pretty scary. It is scary. But in it, you know God. You are forgiven. You have hope. It's hard, but Paul gives us an amazing motivation. You're going to need to come back next week to hear that. We're going to hear it in full next week. But let me give you a really brief taster. The motivation of suffering for the gospel is this. You ready? Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus rose from the dead. Death did not hold him down. Death was not his end. And eternal life will be given to all those who trust in him. When he died, he died your death and mine. So that we could be forgiven and live forever. That's the heart of what Paul passed on. Those who trust in Jesus that he rose from the dead will be raised to eternal life. That is no myth or legend or fairy story. That's the truth. Jesus rose from the dead and gives us life forever. What could be so important that you'd rather hold on to it than give it up for the sake of people hearing that message? So don't give your best energy to some multinational so they can make more money. Remember the importance of God's word. Don't give your money to the pleasures of the world that are here today and gone tomorrow. Give your money to the things that will last in eternity, to the word being proclaimed. Don't take on the bucket list view of life. You know that view that everyone says around us? You haven't lived until you've been overseas. You haven't lived until you've, you've bought a boat, that you've got a garden. You know, that somehow growing veggies makes you live. Uh, this idea that you haven't lived unless you're married or you've built your dream house or you've had kids or you've succeeded in your career, you've invented a way to get to the moon for free. You know what bucket lists are good for? Throwing in the trash. That's the bucket they belong in. See, eternity is given for us to enjoy God and his people. How much greater will it be basking in the glory of the one who made us, seeing Jesus face to face without sin, forgiven from all that we have done? 
How much greater will the relationships be when we know everyone perfectly without sin? I tell you, just the normal relationships of of brother and brother and brother to sister and of one another in heaven will be far better than the best marriage on earth. You're not missing out on anything. You've been given everything in Christ. So Paul says in 2 Timothy 10, next week we'll see part of this. This is why I endure all things for the elect, so that they also might obtain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul's call is for us as a church to use all we have, our time, our energy, our finances, our possessions, so that this word, this gospel might be proclaimed. The temptation for us as Christians is to look at our little barn called church, look around and go, hey, it's nice. There's plenty of people here. They're friendly. I like some of them, you know, not all of them. But, you know, I'm pretty happy here. I'm pretty content with what we have but we fail to look to the fields. We fail to look outside this little building here and see how many people don't yet know Jesus. And we're like, oh, this is great. We're growing and it's exciting. Yes, but look how many people don't know him yet. 50 years, two every year, only reaches 5% of the population. We need to stop looking at the barns called church and look to the fields to recognize how much work needs to be done. And to recognize that the thing that will see people move from death to life in all eternity is the truth of the gospel. The question each of us needs to go home and answer tonight is this. How will you suffer for the gospel? Let me pray. Father God, we are so thankful that you have revealed yourself to us. That we don't need to go seeking and trying to find more of you, but that you, through the apostles, have revealed yourself so clearly. That your spirit comes and takes up residence in us so we might understand you and know you and be convicted of your truths and comforted of the great goodness that you've given us. We pray tonight that as we reflect on what Jesus has done, on the truth of that message that Paul passed on to Timothy and through a long chain of people heard tonight here, that we would hold on to that. That we would not seek to know you outside of your word, but that we would trust that you've spoken by your spirit in your word to us. We pray, Father, that you would entrust this message to those who are faithful and reliable and able to teach. We pray that you might prompt us tonight, whether that be through the encouragement of friends or through your word here, to think about how we might be used for your kingdom. Father, if there's any reason why we shouldn't be in this entrusted role, we pray you show us. Otherwise, Lord, keep growing each of us to be used by you. Father, we long that many, many, many more people come to know Jesus. And we pray that you'd use us in whatever way you see fit, through whatever skills we have and whatever partnerships we can form and whatever abilities that you've given us to see more people in your kingdom on that final day. Father, we can't do it. But we know that you do it through your word and by your spirit. And so we pray that you would use us for your glory and for our good. Amen.